in the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Jones and his father Henry search for a holy grail. And they do this because legend has it that it can heal all wounds, it will give you youth forever, and it will deliver eternal happiness. As the movie progresses towards the end, they eventually find this holy grail. But in a series of unfortunate events, an earthquake is triggered as someone tries to take it from its protected place outside. And then this holy grail ends up teetering on the edge of a cliff. As the place is beginning to crumble, Elsa, as pictured here, tries to grab the grail over this deep edge of a cliff. But the problem is that as she reaches for this holy grail, she begins to pull away from Indiana Jones, who is barely holding on to her over the cliff. And so he tells her, stop reaching for it and reach for my hand instead. Unfortunately, she doesn't listen and she keeps going for it. And as a result, she slips from his hand and falls to her death. An earthquake then hits again and suddenly, Indiana Jones is in the exact same situation as Elsa was. Except now it's his father that's holding on to his hand as he teeters over the edge of a cliff. And like Elsa, he is tempted by the grail and begins to reach for it over this cliff. And as he does, he too begins to pull away his father from his father. But just as his father, uh, as he did moments ago, so his father does for him. He pleads with him just to let it go. Stop reaching for the Holy Grail. Reach onto my hand instead. And in a dramatic move, he does. He forsakes it, and he clings to his father instead. And as a result, he finds life in the end, and he's saved. Well, Elsa doesn't and dies. This scene, while perhaps not intentional, communicates a powerful truth for all of us here this morning. We can, in the pursuit of happiness, youth, eternal life, whatever it might be, look for it, really, in the wrong things. And in the end, it is actually this desire in the wrong thing that can lead us over a cliff to death if we pursue it to the end. So as we come to our text this morning, we must learn then to relinquish wrong pursuits that lead to death and to instead grab a hold of that which is most valuable, that which will truly save your life in the end. And this is what Paul is part starting to get at here in chapter 3 of Philippians. He wants the believers there to relinquish any sort of pursuit of fleshly things that, that present life but end up delivering death. And to instead grab a hold of that which is safe and infinitely valuable. And that is Jesus Christ. So as we come then to chapter 3, verse 1, we find first the safety of joy in the Lord. Paul writes to us, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord is something that Paul has repeated often in this letter. 
but it is also what Paul has exhibited and modeled to the believers in his imprisonment. He desires that the believers have joy in the Lord, even as he himself does, no matter what circumstances he finds himself. But this brings a pressing question to all of us. If we are to pursue this joy, how does one find joy in the Lord that he calls for? Does one just simply, you know, will yourself into having joy? You just tell yourself, have joy in the Lord, and boom, there it is. I'm not sure any of us have had that experience. And it doesn't come merely from, from willpower, but really this joy in the Lord that he calls for comes as a result of knowing Jesus more and more and more. And this is what he eventually gets to in verses 10 and 11. Our joy in the Lord comes through knowing Christ as our Lord and growing in that knowledge each and every day. It comes through knowing his faithfulness, his goodness, his sovereignty, his love for us. It comes through meditating upon the precious promises of God in his word to us. It comes through knowing what Christ has accomplished on the cross for us. And so this joy that Paul calls for in verse 1 is obtained, really, as we find it and grow in knowledge of Christ for us, who he is and what he's done. Part of the reason why Paul will call for joy here is because it is safe. And he says, to write to you again about this is no trouble for me at all. I write this again, and I have no problem writing this because it is a safeguard for you. And so that, again, brings us to a question. How is rejoicing in the Lord a safeguard for us? In what sense does rejoicing in the Lord keep you safe? By finding our joy in the Lord, it keeps us safe then from looking elsewhere. It keeps us from the danger of falling in the false teachings that he's about to address here. For often our sin, and when we go outside the will of God into dangerous territory, is the result of us failing to rejoice in the Lord. It's the result of us not finding our fulfillment and our satisfaction in God and who he is. And so what Paul calls the believers here to do is significant for our growth in holiness. For sometimes in fighting sin, we can focus so much on what we shouldn't do. We can focus so much on, on what we should keep away from that we forget what we must cling to above all. So it isn't just a stop going after sinful pleasures, but it is cling to Christ for he offers superior pleasures and joy. It isn't just stop going after that holy grail, but it's cling to the Father for life. And so as we strive for joy in God, we are protected from going elsewhere to dangerous territories. And so we look for our joy as Christians, as believers here this morning, in God, the Father, our source of life. And even as David tells us in Psalm 16, 11, you, O oh God, reveal the path of life 
to me. And in your presence there is abundant joy. And at your right hand are eternal pleasures forevermore. And so Paul calls believers here to strive for joy in the Lord. And I have no issue writing that again and again and again because it will keep you safe. So as Paul begins this portion of chapter 3 then, this is what we must do as believers. Find safety in the joy of the Lord. Paul then moves here to a series of warnings against false now, there is some level of debate as to who these false teachers were, but what we can say with absolute certainty is that this group of opponents or, or false teachers is not the same people that Paul addressed earlier on in chapter 1 of Philippians. We recall from chapter 1, Paul addressed some people who preached Christ out of rivalry and envy of Paul. They preached Christ to the detriment of Paul, to cause him to, to suffer. And yet, despite their selfish motives, Paul says that he can still rejoice because the gospel is being proclaimed, and that's all that matters. But as we look at Paul's rebuke of these guys, that is not his tone of voice at all. He doesn't address this group of opponents with charity whatsoever. Instead, he uses scathing language and cutting sarcasm to their detriment. Look at what he calls them. He calls them dogs, evil workers, those who, who mutilate the flesh. Rather than re rejoice as he did with the opponents in chapter 1, he rebukes them, and quite harshly, if I might add. Again, I think question we have to ask is why? Why does Paul have such a different approach with both groups? Why is he more charitable towards this group in chapter 1 than he is here with this group in chapter 3? And I think the answer has to do with the level of error that each group makes. Well, the first group differed and erred on the side of envy and jealousy. This second group here erred on the gospel message that saves. And because twisting and deforming the gospel was far more serious than anything, Paul intensifies his rebuke in cutting language to match the level of error given. So what we find is that Paul calibrates his speech to match the error he encounters. We must learn to do the same in our church. We must learn to calibrate the intensity of our speech based on how serious a doctrinal issue is or isn't. Not all doctrinal errors or differences deserve scathing rebuke, but some certainly do, as Paul demonstrates. This requires us then to really learn what is most significant in the Bible and that which isn't significant. For sometimes we can major on what is minor and we can minor on what is major in the Bible. This is part of the reason Aaron just began a new class on when doctrine divides in our church. 
we want to think carefully on what we must agree on and defend to the death and that which there is room for disagreement on and charity even as Paul has towards others. So as we come back to this text then, we find that Paul doesn't speak with charity at all for these false teachers. Based on the language Paul uses here, it is likely that these people were Judaizers. Judaizers were Jewish Christians who insisted that Gentile Christians conform to the Jewish law. And if this is the case, then what he says about these Jews is highly ironic. For he calls them dogs, evil workers, and, and mutilators of the flesh. The term dog was often used by Jewish people to describe Gentiles who were ritualistically unclean. This was often attributed to the fact that they wouldn't keep a kosher diet. They would eat anything just like a dog. But notice how Paul takes this term and he flips it on its head. It now wasn't the Gentiles who were unclean dogs. It was these Jews who insisted on the keeping of it for righteousness. Again, there is irony as he calls them evil workers. For while they think they are doing righteous works by forcing Jewish law upon Gentiles, they are instead evil workers as they teach a false way to obtain righteousness and salvation. And last, Paul takes another jab at them by calling them mutilators of the flesh. And this is a play on the word circumcision. Their dependence on circumcision to make them right before God in reality did nothing. Instead, Paul mocks them as cutting and deforming themselves in ugly ways for no reason. In the words of one commentator, Paul takes the Judaizers' greatest source of pride and interprets it as the surest sign that they have no share among God's people. And in the whole grand scheme of things, the Judaizers are the new Gentiles, while Christian believers have become the true Jews. So these false teachers are unclean because they believe themselves capable of being clean through Jewish law. But in reality, this only shows that they are outside the people of God. For the only way to truly enter the kingdom of God as Jesus taught is by placing one's full weight of confidence not in the flesh, not in, in Jewish law-keeping, but in Jesus who grants us entrance into his kingdom. And so this is what Paul begins to get at here in verse 3. We who look to Christ, have faith in Christ, are the true circumcision. We are the true circumcision. And by using that term to describe us, Paul is calling us the true people of God. We are marked as God's true people by faith in Christ, just as Israel of old was marked by their physical circumcision. And so we are circumcised not with hands, as Paul tells us in Colossians, but by the Spirit of God. And with this reality, we worship by the Spirit of God. We worship in spirit and truth, just as Jesus said we would. 
woman at the well. So because faith in Christ makes us right with God, Paul reiterates once more, do not put any confidence in the flesh for righteousness. Because Christ is all that matters. He alone gains us the righteousness we need. So it's here then that Paul begins to put forth himself as an example of one who once fell into the trap of placing confidence in the flesh before meeting Jesus. And he presents this this testimony of who he once was for two reasons. First, in giving testimony of his former way of life, he strengthens his call to abandon all confidence in the flesh, even as he did when he had all the reasons in the world not to. And second, Paul's testimony displays really the infinite worth of Jesus as he's willing to give up everything that he had once gained for Christ. So Paul gives glad testimony of what he used to boast in, of what he used to find confidence in before meeting Jesus. And he does this starting with four entitlements that he had from birth. He tells us that he was circumcised on the eighth day. And to put it simply, this was what was required in Leviticus 12.3. Circumcision, according to the law, set Paul apart from pagan groups who may have performed circumcision in an invalid way. So he performed the law perfectly as a baby. He was of the nation of Israel. And this claim distinguishes Paul from those who may have converted to Judaism. People who converted to Judaism were sometimes considered second-class citizens. But this wasn't Paul at all. He was of Israel and of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was part of a distinguished tribe of Israel. The tribe of Benjamin was special as it produced its first king, Saul, whom Paul was named after. And last, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul may be referring here to his refusal to adopt Hellenistic ways, like some Jews, but he instead kept to the Hebrew tradition and language, even as some Jews, when they were dispersed, didn't. And so as a Jew, as you look at Paul's heritage, you really cannot ask for anything more impressive in your background. He had it all here, but there's more. He's not done yet. Following this up, he then begins to give us three personal achievements that are quite impressive. He tells us that regarding the law, he was a Pharisee. He was part of the strictest sect of Judaism. These were scholarly men devoted to God's word, and they were highly revered among all the Jews. They strived to keep the law of God perfectly, and Paul was a part of this elite class. Paul then lists how zealous he was for God by persecuting the church. Not only did he keep the Jewish faith, but he went after those who, in his mind, perverted it. He didn't just stand idly by. He was so zealous for the Jewish faith, he went after those who who twisted, in his mind, the Jewish religion. And so, like Phineas, who was commended for executing an unfaithful Israelite in Numbers 25, so Paul thought of himself in quite the same way. 
he executed unfaithful Jews who converted to the way of Christ. And then last but not least, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, he was blameless. As far as keeping the law goes, Paul was blameless in the sense that you could check his rep sheet and you could find nothing on it. Like this guy was squeaky clean. He did everything to the letter of the law and this made him practically the perfect Jew. So because of his impressive heritage, his, his achievements, Paul, of all people, had reason to find confidence that he was okay with God based on where he had come from and what he had achieved. But instead of finding confidence in the flesh, Paul says he considers all of it, all of his heritage, all of his achievements, all of that was once gained to him, and he now counts it as loss because of Jesus. And it's here in verses 7 through 11 that we find the infinite value of gaining Christ. When Jesus entered Paul's life, everything changed radically. His entire value system was turned upside down. As Paul tells us now that everything that was once gained, all of this prestige, all of this honor, all of these accomplishments, he counts it as loss for Christ. Everything that Paul once prided himself in, how he defined himself, how he presented himself to other people, he counts that loss. He writes it off as nothing more than a smelly pile of dung or excrement waiting to be disposed of. And why does he do this? He does it so that he might gain Christ and know him and be found in him. He does it because of the infinite value of knowing Jesus as his Lord. And at the end of the day, this is all that mattered to Paul. For it's only in Christ, through his perfect life, death, and resurrection, that Paul could gain the righteousness God desires. It is only in Christ that we are saved. And so he relinquished his pursuit of man-made righteousness and instead placed it in Christ's perfect righteousness, his perfect faithfulness. Because in order to gain Christ, one must be willing to make Christ everything to him or herself. For just as Jesus said, whoever would save his life must lose it for my sake. And in doing so, he would find his life saved. Now there's a point of clarification here that I think is needed for all of us. In counting these things as, as loss or as excrement, it's important for us to understand that it's not as if Paul despises his heritage, or thinks it was all a complete waste. For he'll speak of his heritage positively elsewhere in Scripture. Nor does Paul despise the practice of circumcision, or really the keeping of Jewish law. For again, he will have Timothy circumcised as a Jew, and he, as a Jew, will follow Jewish customs out of respect. So I don't want us to misunderstand here. Paul doesn't hate these things in of themselves or think of them as intrinsically evil. 
But what he does consider evil and highly problematic is looking to these things as a way to gain God's righteousness or favor. And that's where the danger lies for all of us. We can take that which is neutral, and by looking for our life in it, our righteousness in it, God's favor in it, we twist it, and we make it an idol. And this is what Paul is calling us to forsake. There is no righteousness. There is no salvation. There is no favor in anything but in Christ and our faith in him. So we must be careful then not to twist the gospel or distort it by adding our own means of salvation. With this understanding then, there are at least two points of application. The first is that we must never think that we can somehow earn God's favor or righteousness through our heritage. This means that it doesn't matter if you were born into an elite Christian family. That in of itself does not make you righteous before God. Faith in Jesus does. For our children here, it doesn't matter if your parents' parents' parents were Christians or missionaries or pastors or whatever. That doesn't make you righteous before God. Faith in Jesus does. On the flip side, neither should we be discouraged if our family was dysfunctional or if we grew up in an unbelieving household because it is faith in Christ that makes one righteous before God. It is faith in Christ that defines us, not our background and not our unbelieving household. We must be careful then not to think that we have God's favor or righteousness based on our heritage or our family. Neither should we think that we can somehow earn God's favor or righteousness through achievement or performance. Sometimes I think we can be tempted to subtly place our confidence in our performance and what we do rather than in Christ's perfect faithfulness on our behalf. And I think this is clearly revealed in Jerry Bridges' book, Discipline by Grace. In this book, he gives you two radically different scenarios. The first scenario is a good day spiritually for you. You get up promptly when your alarm goes off, and you have a refreshing, quiet time in the Word, and you read your Bible and you pray. Your plans generally fall into place, and you somehow sense the presence of God with you. And then to top it all off, you unexpectedly have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone who is truly searching. And as you talk with that person, you silently pray for the Holy Spirit to help you and to also work in your friend's heart. And then he gives a second scenario. And this second day is exactly the opposite of the first. You don't wake up at the first ring of your alarm. Instead, you shut it off and you go back to sleep. And when you finally wake up, it's way too late to have your quiet time with the Lord. And so you hurriedly eat some breakfast and you rush off to the day's activities. You feel guilty about oversleeping, about missing your quiet time with God, and things just generally go wrong all day. You become more and more irritable as the day wears on. You certainly don't sense God's presence in your life. 
That evening, however, you again unexpectedly have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who is really interested in knowing about Christ. Now, considering both of these days, would you enter those two witnessing opportunities with a different degree of confidence? Would you be less confident on the bad day than on the good day? Would you find it difficult to believe that God would bless you and use you in the midst of a rather bad spiritual day? If you answered yes to any of those questions, you have company among 80% of the Christians in the world. But the question we must ask is whether or not this type of thinking is justified. Is it right? Is this how God works in our life? And the answer is no on all accounts. For God's blessing to us, his favor to us, his righteousness to all of us is not something that we earn. But it has everything to do with what Jesus has accomplished for us. It's all his grace and it's freely given to those who place their faith in Christ alone. So when we struggle in looking to our performance for for righteousness or God's favor or his blessing, we must remember in the words of Bridges, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. And so we must look again and again and again each and every day to where God's grace is most clearly revealed in Jesus. We look to Jesus alone, for he alone gives true life and and true righteousness to those who trust him and rely on him wholly and completely. And as we return to the text, this is why Paul urges them and himself to make it their goal then to know Christ. That's all that matters. Know Christ, for is far greater than anything. Know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. And so Paul strives then for an intimate knowledge of the Jesus who saves and gives joy and keeps us safe. And so like Paul, we like him should strive to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. We want to know more and more of that same power that raised Jesus from the dead as our lives are radically transformed. And as we are transformed, we know Jesus all the more. But not only do we come to know Jesus deeply in this way, but also through the sufferings we undergo in life. For just as Jesus suffered in following the Father's will, so we now suffer in following Christ. And Paul tells us that in our sufferings, it's a part of the way that we come to know Jesus more. It's a way to have deeper fellowship of who Jesus is to experience his fellowship with us. And so it's in this that we can rejoice as we not only come to know Jesus more experientially, but we come to know him more as we become like him. So through all of this, 
Christ prepares us to meet him on that And as we come to know Jesus more, our, our desire, our hope is that on that final day, when we see Jesus face to face, we will be just like him. And our hearts will receive our treasure and our reward, Christ himself. So even as we now go to a word of prayer, may our heart's desire be to truly know Christ and to count all things lost in comparison to gaining him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, thanking you for Jesus. And even as Paul says he gladly counted all things lost to gain Jesus, so we ask and pray that you would help us as the church to do the same. If there are any things in our life that are interfering with our gaining of Christ, may we, like Paul, count it as loss. May we make the entirety of our life about Jesus. May we love him supremely, for there is no greater joy than knowing Jesus as our Lord. So help us, Lord, to believe this, to have eyes of faith, and to know this experientially as we are conformed to the likeness of Christ. We ask that you would do this in and through our church for